This is Passing Notes from the History of Education Society. You've probably noticed from my accent that, although this podcast is produced by the UK History of Education Society, I myself am not British. Instead, like thousands of other students this year and throughout Britain's history, I've traveled over an ocean to study at a British university. You could say that I'm an overseas student, although the term international is more in vogue these days. There is a long history of overseas or foreign students studying at British universities, but today we're going to look at the point where that distinction becomes really meaningful. In 1966, the British government announced that fees for overseas students would, for the first time, be different than those for home students. This is the moment when it starts literally costing something to have that foreign or international label placed on you. Unsurprisingly, students were not happy about the prospect of suddenly paying substantially more money for their education. And, given that it is the 1960s, protests sprung up in response. Our guide through this complicated moment today is going to be Dr. Jody Burkett. She is a social and cultural historian of late 20th century Britain and a senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth. Her research looks at the cultural and social impacts of the end of the British Empire, with a particular focus on national movements like the National Union of Students. One of her recent contributions on the topic is a chapter in The Breakup of Greater Britain, which examines this moment in the 1960s when overseas students started paying higher fees at UK universities. Jody's chapter, Boundaries of Belonging, Differential Fees for Overseas Students circa 1967, touches on a number of important issues relating to race, national identity, and student politics. We touch on many of those topics in our conversation today. Now, I really appreciated speaking with Jody. As an international student myself, it helped put the current state of affairs into a richer historical context. And I think it also provides a window into wider conversations about Britain's place in the world today. Before we jump in, a quick note about the audio for today's episode. Jody was joined by her lovely canine companions for some of the recording, so you might hear them in the background. They were just really excited to talk about student politics. And since I'm sure you are too, let's jump in. Well, welcome, Jody. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm really excited for our conversation. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. Your focus on the National Union of Students is one of the parts of the chapter that I found the most interesting, particularly because you point to a lot of the sort of internal politics and structure of the organization as being one of the main reasons why it addresses this question in the way it does. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how the organization is set up and run at this point. What does student politics and student activism look like? And then how is that impacting their response to the fee hikes. I'm going to start actually with talking a little bit about 1968, if that's okay. Because actually student politics is often linked to, or mostly 68, looms really large in student politics. And I think one of the reasons I started looking at student politics is I was sort of expecting there to be quite a lot of activity in 68. And what I actually found was... um, quite a a problematic situation for for Britain. So in in historiography of 1968, 
Britain doesn't loom very large at all. There's either you know a page about Britain or a, a, a paragraph at some sometimes, um, and partly that is because of the character of the National Union of Students at this time. So one of the interesting things is that the National Union of Students Constitution in the late 60s um, contained a clause, clause three, um, which meant that they they said specifically they didn't want to become a political debating forum. So they were only allowed to talk about things um, that affected students because they were students. So this is usually referred to as the um, students as such clause. So, you know, for example, they, um, they talked about apartheid, but they could only talk about apartheid in education. They couldn't talk about the system of apartheid. And this was a huge area of contention within the NUS through the 1960s. So you can see um, they have fantastic verbatim minutes of their conferences twice a year, which are a wonderful historical source. Um, but you can see within them, every single conference, they debate this part of the constitution through the late 60s. And it finally, they finally managed to change it at the end of 68. So, so National Union of Students was not involved in any student protests in 68 because they weren't allowed to be really. There were obviously local students who were. Um, so there was um, sit-ins and those kinds of things at, at universities, but the NUS itself wasn't allowed to be involved. And this changed really from 69. So 69, you see the NUS changed significantly in character. It really becomes a campaigning organization after 69 um, with its new president, Jack Straw. So he sort of takes the NUS in, in that, into the new direction of being able to actually have a political voice. But what you see in, in the late 60s then is when this is debate is going on, some people are really working within the NUS to try to change it, and some people are deciding to abandon the NUS and set up their own organizations. So you see some new organizations being created. Um, probably, probably the biggest one is the Revolutionary Socialist Student Federation, the RSSF. Um, and it is started in sort of the late 66, early 67. And interestingly, one of its first issues that it takes up is the overseas student fee height. Um, so they take up this um, issue as, as both a place to um, have their own voice, but also a way to really undermine or criticize the NUS. Um, and so they use the, the issue of overseas student fees to highlight what they see as a lack of commitment by the NUS or an inability to, to affect real change. So they use this, this issue to try and encourage students to either leave the NUS or to push it to becoming more of a political um, organization. So the, and the overseas student fees kind of gets caught up in that debate about what the role of a student movement should be, what the role of the organization should be, and what they should be doing, their place in British society more broadly. And in terms of sort of how that shakes out, it my sense is that students broadly are not supportive of this change, but it seems like there's different reasons for that. And in particular, you point to the conservative student organization, which coming from an American context, I was just kind of shocked to see any resistance coming from that corner. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit how that fits in with this broader bit of student politics um, and maybe national politics more broadly at that time. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that we often forget is that there are actually important conservative student organizations. Um, and we see certainly through the 70s, the Federation of Conservative Students become much and much more popular and larger and have more of a voice. But in this debate, really, um, conservative students follow the conservative um, 
party line. All of this is um, taking place under a labor government. So it's a labor government that is bringing in this this rule or the, the new tuition fees. Um, so the Conservative Party is against that just on principle because it's something that Labour is doing. But sort of more fundamentally, they see this as a, a recognition um, that Britain doesn't have that important um, imperial role anymore. So a lot of Conservatives are still quite imperial-minded. They want Britain, if they're not going to be... Um, a formal empire, then they want them to be at the heart, at the head of the Commonwealth. They want to keep soft imperial things going, and they see education of overseas students as a really important way to to keep Britain's international and imperial position. So, conservative students follow those kinds of lines as well. That they advocate that that overseas students should be able to come here because then we'll then they'll set up businesses, they'll um, network with us, they'll continue to buy British goods, they'll you know keep this sort of soft imperial power going. Um, so it. It's, it, it's seen as more of um, an opposition to Britain becoming smaller, diminished in some way. It's a way to keep that, that great power status in one form or another. Yeah. Were there any students who were supportive of this? Is there any records of students who think that this is a good move for the government to be making? Yes. And, and some of those are conservatives as well. So it's not all conservatives that... Um, um, see see this as a problem. But yes, there are definitely some students who said absolutely the government should be doing this because um, mostly because, you know, these students don't pay, their parents don't pay taxes. So why should we be subsidizing them? So the, the lots of the arguments for this and the government's own arguments for this policy are very fiscal minded that, um, and this has been set up. So um, the Robbins report, 1963, um, but is a very important sort of moment in um, higher education policy. And it's in this document, actually, that for the first time, the government starts talking about educating overseas students as providing a subsidy for them. Um, and so the language changes. So it's not just so it, you know, it's the introduction of fees then is reducing the subsidy rather than anything else. So the, the people who, are, who um, support the policy are are all about, you know, trying to save Britain money. And and there's also arguments as well that overseas students, quite rightly, are not poor. Most of them, they're quite well off. You know, it's, it's quite an elite thing to come to Britain to be a student. Um, and so m- most of these students could pay for um, an increase. The government's uh, argument as well is that a lot of these students are funded by the government. So the British Council pays for a lot of these, so they won't even notice. So what's the problem? Um, so it's partly about shifting the money to, some, to another organization. Um, but yeah, there are some students who, who certainly do approve of this because they see it as, as sound fiscal policy. And I think something you pointed to there about you know, these students largely being wealthy or there being a a sort of elite status involved in coming to the UK to study speaks to this idea of sort of changing racializations of overseas students and particularly the way that student activists are talking about the fees is actually contributing to a sort of more racialization or different racialization of overseas students than had existed previously. And so I was kind of curious how you see that transition happening. What does the racialization of overseas students look like before this moment? And how does this transition into what might be a different way of looking at those students? Yeah, I think this is one of the most important, but also one of the most complicated aspects of what's going on. So discussions about race, I think, are are really prominent in 60s Britain. How they get muddled up really with overseas students and the politics of that is quite interesting. So I think before this, what we tend to see is, you know, so colonial students are understood as black and poor. 
not necessarily rightly so, um, but but their sort of colonial students are are racialized as in that way, whereas other students are um, are either not considered overseas or foreign in that sort of way. Um, or, you know, sort of foreign students are, are not problematic in that kind of way. So I think one of the, the processes that's going on, so what is happening is the lumping together everyone of, as overseas and the way that then overseas students are sort of automatically assumed to be black and poor or from Africa or from Asia. Is, it, it's the ways in which those conversations are happening in the public that automatically link overseas and, um, and black and poor. That is, I think, the process of racialization that's taking place. So I think that's what we, that, what I'm trying to unpick there is, is how the public discourses about that are, are actually happening. And I think, so I think one of the things we need to remember, first of all, you know, overseas students, as I said, are, are tend to be quite wealthy. They often have to do checks of their financials before they're allowed to come. So, you know, there is, there is a real sense that, that, you know, this is an elite endeavor. We also need to remember that I think in the late sixties, probably 40% of students are coming from, or at least from of the top eight countries that are sending students, 40% of them are coming from the US, Canada, and Norway. Just to back up a little bit, we don't actually have any um, records of the skin color or the race of overseas students. A lot of this is based on countries of origin and sort of that was at the time um, how they were discussing it, but it's also sort of the only data that we have is where the countries um, students are coming from. It, by and large, students coming from the US, Canada and Norway would be pro predominantly white and they make up about 40% of those top eight sending countries. Um, so when we talk about overseas students as automatically poor and black, we ignore that whole section, um, which is, uh, you know, in its own ways problematic. But I think more importantly, as we see that that um, racialization continue in the 70s, we ignore completely the experience of black British students. And I think what it's really doing is, is continuing and setting up that dichotomy between home white or home British white and foreign black other. And I think that's what's really quite problematic. Um, and certainly some of the stuff, the work I've done on the, the later 70s, it, there are very clear examples of black British students who then join overseas student organizations. They're not overseas students, but there are th that's where race is being discussed. That's where anti-racism is happening. Um, so they, that sort of that connection of overseas and blackness um, becomes useful in some ways and also highly problematic in others. So I was that's what I was trying to unpick is how, how those debates um, and automatically assuming that overseas students are poor and black becomes a problematic issue. That's really fascinating. I'd love to turn now the bigger picture, sort of how this fits in with these broader ideas of Britain's place in a decolonizing world. And particularly, you talk about this shift, which I think you've discussed a little bit, but I was wondering if we could dig into it a bit more deeply, of this view as Britain from sort of a mother country that has an empire to which it is in some ways responsible, even if the, those ways can be a bit problematic, to having a development relationship with the Commonwealth where it provides aid and development assistance, but doesn't necessarily have quite the same set of responsibilities. And I was wondering if you could sort of explain that dichotomy and particularly how you see that playing out in the language being used in this discussion. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the places there, there is some some really good historiography. I think it's J.M. Lee who, who really talks about, or he says this is when Britain shed the role of mother country. Um, he's talking about, you know, that, that move from a sort of 
paternalist, parental, you know, looking after, you know, as I saw their children, the children of empire, to to being more more of a, you know, a sibling, perhaps, than a parent, that kind of relationship. So he talks about that, that mother country role um, being shed. And, and Sarah Stockwell as well, she picks the 60s as that, that decade when the Commonwealth becomes about development. And it, I mean, certainly the, the, the empire in the late, in the 30s and 40s is really about sort of development, um, and 50s for sure. Um, but it's with the, um, the independence of most of these countries through the 1960s. Um, it is that shift of of trying to figure out how to carry on these relationships. There, there is obviously a relationship. There, it makes sense for there the, to be a connection um, because of language. But yeah, that that sort of shift. I think we see it in the, this debate that the discussion of of people. You can sort of see people working out that you know we feel responsible, but are we responsible? And what does that actually mean? How people talk about different kinds of students so so um nicholas tarling i think i i mentioned as well he he talks about how we see that relationship based on how where students are coming from so if they're coming from a developed world we have a quite the british government had quite a different attitude towards them it's, they saw it more as an educational exchange rather than sort of looking after people um and i you know certainly when i was doing the research i was quite struck by how the discussion really ended up being about um, foreign aid and so there were there were lots of people within the house of commons who criticized the government for bringing this policy in saying that this was just another sort of backdoor way for them to cut um, aid spending um, and certainly the government had been cutting aid spending that's one of the things they were doing there was you know some fiscal problems going on so they were looking for ways to to cut um, cut expenditure and aid is one of them so there were very quickly, um, the discussions about overseas student education became really about, uh, you know, this is this is one of the best ways that we have a foreign aid, um, and you can see I think some of the problematic discussions about aid creep in there as well. So they, one of the arguments was that this is one of the best forms of foreign aid because it can't be squandered. So it um, it brings up all those issues about, you know, they they were concerned about giving money to what they saw as corrupt governments or stuff and, and if they could just bring over these young men educate them properly so that they were you know inculcated into sort of british ways of doing things and send them back then that would be a much better way to to um, keep connections with these countries but also bring them up to um british standards it was kind of surprising to me to see this be part of the foreign aid conversation is that something is that a new way of understanding overseas students at this time? Or is that more of a longstanding tradition to think about aid? Because I, I was particularly struck by the comment that it's an underappreciated version of aid, that the countries don't appreciate how much money we're spending on their students. And so part of the fee hike is sort of to make them recognize the true cost and how much we are actually giving in aid. But at least for me, I ne sort of never thought about that as a form of foreign aid. I was surprised by it too, actually. It was really interesting how um, the discussions about, you know, how these countries should be really grateful comes very quickly into, you know, partly this is a great way to, to give aid because then we can direct exactly what is happening and how it works. But also we need to highlight this to other countries to show how much we're spending on their students. 
And I think it's controversial because I, I certainly don't get the impression that um, a lot of these foreign, these countries sending their students to Britain perceive it in this way. Um, so that's, that is becomes a bone of contention, certainly um, ambassadors and sort of officials from these countries are not receptive to that to that language at all. Um, and certainly a lot of them and certainly a lot of the students later on see see it not as aid but as a form of reparations in a way. And I think that's also quite interesting in that they they see this as uh and it's it's Britain's responsibility to um, educate these students partly because being part of the empire is why they don't have their own universities to go to. They see it as yeah, as a way that Britain needs to make amends for what they've done rather than um, be magnanimous and give us this gift. So there, there is a real um, tension there, I think. I would love to talk a bit about sources, and particularly because you worked so robustly with those student sources. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the source base you are working for, and then what the challenges or opportunities with working with those sources might be. Yeah, so, I mean, over, um, student newspapers is largely what I've been working with, and they're fantastic, um, but they are challenging for sure. So we've, we've certainly seen in the last sort of around decade or so, a number of universities have digitized their student newspapers, which is fantastic. So we've got, I think, six or seven now universities that have digitized. And it's particularly the post-war period. So I think some of the earliest um, are probably the Imperial College London's Felix starts in 49, I think, but a lot of them start in the 60s. So that's fantastic. So this is a, an opportunity. I think student newspapers are, are a wonderful source. They give us access to um, student voices in a way that we Hadn't, haven't really before. So previously, if you wanted to look at students, you'd most discussions of overseas students talk about government policies or what's in the national press and those kinds of things. So looking at student newspapers gives us a, a much better insight into what's actually happening on campuses. Now that they are obviously quite problematic also in some ways, it is very much a self-selecting group. Um, so the people who are involved in student newspapers are very active students. So that gives us a particular type of um, student. It's not the norm by any stretch. They, they tend they get more and more professional as the the decades go on but they are certainly in, in the 60s somewhat hit or miss about the kind of information they give you sometimes they let you know who the editorial board is sometimes they don't most of the time they don't have um, authors for the the articles so you don't know who exactly is writing it you don't necessarily know what that author's background is particularly. Some of the newspapers are obviously the voice of the student union and some are very much independent of the student union. So sometimes they're funded by the student union, um, sometimes they tow the student union line, sometimes they do not. Um, so there's there's all of that sort of stuff going on. And I think as well, one of the issues with the digitization, although it's fantastic, it is all universities and quite wealthy universities that have had the time and the space to digitize their newspapers. Um, so that tends to skew things in a particular way. So whereas, you know, a few years ago, it was only the Times that was digitized, so everyone was using the Times. I think a similar sort of thing happens with, with student newspapers. So I think one of the, th the things that I'm particularly keen to point out is that um, higher education is not just universities. Certainly in, in the 60s and more so even in the 70s, the, the highest growth in higher education is actually in polytechnics. And certainly for, for overseas students, I think if you look at numbers, 
as many overseas students are going to polytechnics and technical colleges as they are going to universities. So um, one of the things is that we don't have really any um, student newspapers digitized from former polys, so post-92 institutions. The only possible example or um, exception there is the Leeds student, which in 1970, I think, um, joins up and has becomes the newspaper for both the university and the poly. So this is the first time you get sort of a poly student perspective. Um, so it does tend to skew our understanding of, of these students towards the wealthier, um, more research intensive and so there are, I mean, certainly some caveats to, to using them, but again, I think they're a fantastic source. We've talked big picture that overseas students are the site for a lot of these anxieties about Britain's place in the world, about race and immigration. And I'm sure that played out sort of in their day-to-day -day lives and their experience of being and studying in the UK. And I was just wondering if there were any stories you had come across or descriptions of their experience that had really stuck with you. So actually getting at the voice of overseas students is somewhat challenging. So the student newspapers give you some hint of that. Every now and then there's an article that's penned. Often it's credited as being by, you know, an overseas student group rather than an individual. So, you know, you don't necessarily get that. But there's, there's obviously, there's a few examples there's more examples from the 70s than there is from the 60s, um, and more examples possibly from the 50s as well. One of the caveats is all of this is from overseas students who are black. So we don't really have the voice of um, overseas students who pass as home students in that way. Um, so I think that's one thing to keep in mind. But all of these students talk about discrimination. They were you know, subject to significant um, racial discrimination on and off campus. Um, so that, that I think is something quite important. Certainly we see in NUS conference records, um, you know, that they, they were anti-racist, but also you see as well that they're blind to their own, their own assumptions about um, black students in particular. So there, were, there was lots of concern in the 50s um, and lots of examples, actually, of overseas students becoming radicalized by being here. Hakim Adi's book, which is quite interesting about West African students um, in Britain, he only goes up to 1960, so his examples are earlier. Um, certainly he talks about how they didn't realize that they were colonial until they got here. Um, and, you know, we got lots of examples of, of overseas students. You know, I think, I think partly, especially because they come from these wealthy, privileged backgrounds, they're, that's kind of the treatment they're used to, as being elite. And then they come to Britain and are treated really badly. Um, and that really changes their sense of what the empire is like, what Britain is like, and what their place is within it. Um, now, one of the one of the examples so I have done a, a couple of a, a little bit of oral history. I'd like to do a lot more. But one of the persons I interviewed was a man, um, he's a professor now at a medical school in Manchester, Professor um, Anis Esmail, and he was the president of the Overseas Student Bureau at Sheffield in the late 1970s. But he wasn't an overseas student, and I think that's one of our interesting examples. So he was a black student. Um, he was from um, Kenya, so he came over as part of the Kenyan Asian. Um, crisis, if you want to call it that, but he was Kenyan Asian, he came over with his family, but because he'd lived here for a number of years when he started university, he wasn't an overseas student. But he talks a lot about how, um, how he perceived the government's treatment of overseas students as, um, as unfair and how much he then, that, that shaped his understanding, his, his anti-imperial understanding 
and his understanding of of race in Britain in the 70s. So yeah, there there are some examples of overseas students talking about their own experiences, but they they are largely dominated by stories of discrimination. Discrimination in housing was a particularly problematic one. I mean that that is true in the 60s of of all immigrants, Irish and um, black immigrants. But so there's lots of stories of landladies in particular not accepting overseas students or black students. Um, and the NUS did have particular policies about that. They actively um, would strike off landladies if they were um, racist. But that was certainly a predominant aspect of their their um, their story. I think in terms of the the examples of the stories of overseas students themselves, there is definitely a sense that it that being an overseas student shaped their understanding of the world. And more, I don't know. I don't know of any examples where it it made them less anti-imperial. <laughs> Certainly, it, it if anything, all of the examples are about becoming more radical, more anti-imperial, more anti-racist. Um, because of kind of that milieu. We do, of course, have examples of overseas students being killed in London. There were two um, killed in the late 1970s, um, around the same time as um, the, the murder of Shagar, 76, I think. So, um, so there are these examples as well of quite clear, violent discrimination. That's sort of a great lead into my final question, which is just in reflecting on how this research intersects with the history of education, but obviously with so many other histories. Are there things that you've learned or taken from this experience that will sort of inform how you think about your work? I'm thinking about that that exact lesson that the relationship to overseas students and broader activism movements is really central. Are there other reflections from this work that have really stuck with you in that regard? I think really that the demand, the need to see a lot of this sort of really local stuff actually being part of transnational conversations. I think that's the thing that it's really highlighted to me, um, to, to always remember that overseas students are coming from somewhere they come with an understanding of the world and they they shape the situation that they find themselves in as well so there's no way of knowing what how student activism would have developed without this international flow of students so yeah i think that the need the requirement to see national and local politics as actually being part of these international networks and transnational conversations about all manner of things, you know, from from black power to certainly, you know, you see all these discussions within NUS politics about um, about Iran and Iraq in the late 70s because there were Iranian and Iraqi students there talking. So having these conversations about, you know, these um, conflicts many hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away, but they're played out in these local places because we have diasporas connecting in that way. Um, so, yeah, I think that is kind of one of the main things that I keep being forced to do. It's so much easier to do national and local history, but to actually <laughs> have to remember that the diasporas have to think of the broader question, have to think of, okay, where are these students coming from? What kinds of things that they experienced already? And how are they, you know, that it becomes much more complicated, but I think a much deeper, much more nuanced picture of the situation that we find ourselves in. That's a really fabulous place to leave it. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been amazing to learn more about your research, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Passing Notes is a production of the History of Education Society UK. 
Our social media manager is Elena Rossi, and our executive producer is Heather Ellis. This episode was written and produced by me, Michael Donne. You can find a transcript of this episode, as well as more information about our events, publications, and conferences at our website, historyofeducation.org.uk.